Today on episode number 147 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Stephen Brookfield discusses racial identity in the higher ed classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me for this episode is Dr. Stephen Brookfield. He's actually been on two episodes in the past, and I'm very grateful for his continued conversation to our community. He was on episode number 15, How to Get Students to Participate in Discussion, and he was on episode 98, talking about his absolutely wonderful book called The Skillful Teacher. And one of the things that we talked about in The Skillful Teacher is as he revised it, he added in a chapter about race and what an important part of our teaching that is. And I'm going to share a little bit with you now about Stephen, but quickly get to welcoming him to the show. Stephen Brookfield began his teaching career in 1970. He's worked in England, Canada, Australia, and the United States, teaching in a variety of college settings. He has written, co-written, or edited 18 books on adult learning, teaching, critical thinking, discussion methods, and critical theory. Stephen Brookfield, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It's always a pleasure to come back and pontificate into uh, unchallenged open air. So thank you for inviting me. The last time you were on the show, we spoke about the skillful teacher, and you had talked about adding in a chapter about race. I wonder how did the issue and some of the challenges of race first come to be significant to you? Well, it's interesting to me as I think back over my life, and I'm coming up to 68 in a couple of weeks, that I'd I'd say for the first half of my life, I was race blind, really. I mean, I knew intellectually that the world is full of multiple uh, racial groups and cultural identities and ethnicities and so on. But in terms of my deciding that addressing race was something that I needed to focus on in my own practice, it, it really just wasn't at the forefront of my consciousness. And I think that's because mostly I worked in all white contexts, and uh, my colleagues were white, my students were white, my employing universities and colleges served mostly a a white European uh, clientele. So, you know, it it was something that I could just not be required to focus on at all. And it was only when I moved to New York started working in New York in 1982 and then subsequently spent 10 years working as an adjunct in Chicago uh, that the the reality of race really forced itself on my consciousness and as I go back and and look at my early books there is almost no reference to race I talk about learners 
as if they were a generic group almost. But pretty much the only differences that I talk about have to do with social class rather than with racial formation. So it was encountering diversity in my everyday life, working with colleagues in multiracial teaching teams, working with students who were from different racial backgrounds. And then I couldn't really uh, ignore it anymore. So it's always interesting to me how people come to deal with race. And I've spoken to so many people who say, uh, until we find ourselves in a multiracial environment, it's not that we consciously exclude this. It's just that it that there is no reason for us to focus on that. So I'm I'm very pleased that in, in American higher education now, we see an increasingly diverse student body. And, and if you go into community colleges, I mean, that's absolutely amazing. You have every racial group, ethnicity, every culture there. And I think that that is increasingly the case in universities, even though when you look at faculty, of course, faculty of color are disproportionately underrepresented. But given the demographic demographic changes in this country, um, we're not, I don't think anybody's going to be able to ignore this, this lately. And, and then, uh, of course, as I uh, came over to this country, I became uh, much more aware of racial dynamics, of fights, of contestation, of how power uh, operated. And so my background in critical theory really allied nicely with my interest in race. And critical theory looks at how um, systems manage to contain challenges through the spread of dominant ideology. And if we consider white supremacy as a dominant, dominant ideology, then it was kind of a natural for me to start focusing more on how it is that the ideology of white supremacy remains relatively unnamed and unchallenged and really shapes people's behavior. So uh, I'm kind of interested in that process of ideological manipulation that goes on. So talk about the former you, Stephen. Introduce me to Stephen Brookfield, the quote unquote, good white person. Okay, um, just before I do that, Bonnie, one of the teaching resources that I've used is a New York Times video. It's an op-ed video called Conversations with My Black Son. And it's a series of African-American parents describing the conversation sooner or later they all have to have with their son on how he is going to react when he's stopped by the police and how he's going to negotiate that particular encounter in a way that keeps him safe. And I've used that as it's just available online for free. Use that as a discussion prompt before we move into discussions where race and and racism are going to be the focus. So the good white person is is a phrase that uh, I borrowed from Shannon Sullivan who has written a very interesting book, several books, but uh, this particular one is called Good White People. And it focuses on the aversive racism, which is an idea that came up in the 80s, whereby whites can convince themselves that they somehow have escaped any kind of racist conditioning, that they have a good heart, 
and that they don't see color, that they judge people on the basis of the content of their character, to use Martin Luther King's famous phrase, that they take people in terms of what actions and choices they make, and and really they don't discriminate on the basis of uh, race, ethnicity, or or anything else. And I, I really recognize myself in that, because I think up until the sort of mid-80s, I had worked as a a teacher for, let's say, 15 years. I began my career in 1970. And I felt that I really didn't uh, see color, that I somehow had escaped racism, that I, just by a sort of fierce, moral Christianity, a strong core of integrity and authenticity, you know, that I had, I was one of the good guys. And yet all the time, I was colluding in a system and in practices that reinforce racism without consciously being aware of this. So something I mentioned earlier, the fact that my books were race blind, you know, I'd I'd say the first two or three was a good example of how I was colluding in a system by just supporting the European American hegemony in, in literature on adult education and, and teaching. So, The good white person is someone who, like me, has convinced themselves that they don't really need to deal with race because they're one of the good guys (laughs) and they're an ally to um, people of color and that if called upon, they will speak out uh, against racism and so on. Uh, All the while, of course, never actually finding themselves in a situation where they have to do that. And, you know, I I say that not with a sense of shame or guilt. It's just an empirical descriptor. You know, I think a lot of uh, whites like myself just grow up with that um, mental framework. And unless something interrupts it, you tend to think you're a good white person. One of the things that you've talked about is just the danger of us unproblematically considering ourselves allies. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the caution, cautionary notes that you might have for those of us who I'm very much with you on the having thought of myself that way or, or, or wanted to think of myself that way in the past? Yeah, I've been in a lot of multiracial groups over the years where one of the things that whites have said very passionately and emotionally is that, and they say this to peers of color, they say, I want to be your ally. I'm your ally. Consider me your ally. I'm here to support you and, and, and speak on your behalf and so on. And I, I don't, this is hard because I don't want to disparage that. That's obviously something that people need to be feeling. It's just that I've noticed colleagues and students of color sometimes tighten up when a white person like myself says that, and I've talked to them about it, and um, I, I, you know, one of the ways that that declaration of allyship is sometimes received is, well, calling yourself an ally is a very nice thing for you to do to make yourself feel better and to make you feel like you're on the moral high ground um, compared to other whites who are not as racially evolved as as you think you are. But really, I've not seen 
evidence of you being an ally and saying that you're an ally, well, that really doesn't cost you anything. Anybody can say that. When I've actually seen some evidence of behavior that costs you something in standing up to racism, then maybe I will consider you an ally. So I always tell colleagues, who, white colleagues, who are new coming into this work and really eager to do the right thing, which is a wonderful sentiment, and you absolutely don't want to dampen that. But I do say to them, don't ever call yourself or name yourself as an ally. Now, if a person of color says to you, I regard you as my ally, then you wear that descriptor with great pride. But it's a dangerous thing just to say that without a continuous experience of having acted in ways that's really earned you that and been acknowledged as, as such by, by colleagues and friends of color. And I know this is a, a, you know, a, a quite a controversial stance to take, and I could be completely wrong about this, but based, it, it's really based on my own autobiography and how I've noticed that tightening and stiffening of, of people of color in, in multiracial groups when whites say that. One of the things I would imagine, too, is that if I have at my core, yes, I've done it, I'm an ally, it's, it's still, I'm still thinking of myself as the good white person, and what that could potentially hold me back from doing is that continual work, we're never done, of wanting to become aware and then rid myself of some of my own unintentional racism that lives within me. And you used the phrase earlier, white supremacy. And what I realize as I've heard you talk about this more is you don't mean it in the way that I interpret that word. I interpret that word, we've got you know white hats on and we're you know burning crosses. I don't think that's what you mean. <laughs> so can you talk about white supremacy, what you mean by that and how you've even said that it lives within you? And I'm guessing you probably would say it lives within me as well. Yeah, and I often wonder about using the term white supremacy, but that is the term that uh, a lot of folks in anti-racist work use. And it's partly, I think, used uh, as a, a trigger to shock people into focusing on racism. And to that degree, I think it works very effectively sometimes because, you know, when, when people say, well, we, we want to work in an anti-racist way, well, most of the people in my sphere agree with that and, and it, there's nothing particularly new or transformative about it. But when you say we all need to identify in the combat the way that white supremacy lives within us and is embedded in common practices uh, like hiring and the way curriculum is designed and the way assessment mechanisms are developed, uh, those sorts of things. You know, saying that white supremacy lives in things that we do every day really gets people's attention. So that's, that's why I like to use that. But I always do, you know, as you said, Bonnie, I start off by saying now white supremacy is not a neo-Nazi skinhead. It's not the Aryan nation. It's not a far-right group that the Southern Poverty Law Center monitors. White supremacy is the idea at its core that whites should occupy 
positions of leadership and authority and should be entrusted to make decisions on behalf of all of us. And the reason that whites should be the natural decision makers in control of resources, um, responsible for making important decisions for all of us, is because whites are more intelligent, have a superior intellect, use reason and logic and objectivity, uh, unswayed by the emotions and often the raw emotions that are attributed to people of color. So we should trust whites because they inhabit this sphere of pure reason. And, and, and that's why when you look at political world, the economic world, the military world, it, it should be the case that most bases are white who are in senior positions of authority. And, and then that idea of white supremacy, whites should be the natural gatekeepers and authorities, does get embedded uh, in all kinds of social practices. I mean, I mean, you see it institutionally in the way faculty of uh, color have such a hard time uh, getting tenure and feel constantly, uh, at least a faculty of color that I know tell me, you know, not only do we have to teach our subject, we also have to teach the rest of our colleagues about race. That's like a second full-time job that's been unofficially dumped on us. That's not in the job description, but we're looked at as the people who should be doing this. So I think when you look at things I've mentioned, hiring practices and, and the way curricula, curricula are constructed, you see white supremacy, the, the ideology embedded in those practices. And then of course, when you look at the world outside, and you look at policing and you look at where, what um, communities power stations are located in and where the top-notch hospital facilities are. It, it, it's very evident that communities of color are systematically excluded and disenfranchised and that the most beneficial resources are located overwhelmingly in, in white communities. So that's what I mean by by white supremacy, this idea that because of the virtue of their superior intellect, whites should be in positions of authority and control and should be the ultimate arbiters in, in matters of, of uh, how resources are distributed for everybody. And that's, I think, what we need to dig down to as white people and, and, and understand how those are embedded within our own consciousness. and, and how they surface in our own actions. One of the fights I have with myself inside my own brain is trying not to treat these things as binary. And when I think about your examples of that, that phrase, white supremacy, I think, gosh, it's so much more helpful for me if I can treat it as a continuum. And I was thinking about some of the my own journey of becoming more aware of how my own race enters into the classroom and <laughs> I think uh, perhaps this is a evidence of my thinking I'm a good white person because my PowerPoints have diverse, generic corporate backgrounds of business people of different colors. And then <laughs> I was sort of wrapped upside the head in the last few years when you start to have people on Twitter particularly saying, okay, go and look at your syllabus or who is your textbook written by and, and who are you having assigning your students to read? And I thought, 
I have absolutely no idea who my syllabus was written by. And recognizing though that a lot of, and this is of course common in business, but but really having a predominant representation of white males in the syllabus and the reading. And then where I really get to where, gosh, I, I have to grow in this area is in guest speakers. Why don't I have in my contacts a broader list of diverse business owners and people in executive positions to bring into my classroom to speak to the students? So I like to think of it, but it helps me realize, well, you'll never get there. You just have to be constantly moving yourself closer toward that ideal where I can rid myself with it for, from as much of that as, as is possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. Edward Lindemann, who was an adult educator back at, uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s um, in the last century, uh, wrote about democracy, that it's always a partially functioning ideal. And, and that's how I think of most of my life. I'm, I'm trying to improve things, but if I measure my success by whether or not this has been a fully democratic classroom or a fully anti-racist curriculum, I'm going to feel permanently depressed. I just have to understand that this is something you always have to keep working towards. One of the approaches that you recommend sounds really counterintuitive. And I'm wondering in terms too of how this might have shocked people you've talked to about it in the past, how might we normalize racism? So I've used that word normalizing racism. And I was actually in a symposium last week and uh, a colleague of mine uh, suggested the term naturalizing racism, which also is a an alternative and, and viable term. Um, and what I mean by that is I think one of the reasons why whites, I'm, I'm speaking about white colleagues and students here, don't want to get into discussions of race is because they fear a moment of shameful confession when they have to talk about a racist action or a racist thought or a time when they were accused of being racist. And they just don't, they fear that moment of, of confession. It's what Michel Foucault talks about as confessional practices, which are very common in human affairs these days. So what I'm trying to do by saying we need to normalize racism is to just communicate to white students and colleagues that it would be very, very strange if we didn't grow up with a degree of white supremacist ideology embedded within us, because that is the ideology that's been transmitted. We've been uh, acculturated to it. We've been socialized into it. We've been soaked in white supremacy. We are naturally expecting people in authority to be white and, and haven't had many examples when that's been countered. So not to have racist elements of white supremacy in you would be really, really weird. So I'm, I'm trying to get across to them, you know, having this within you is, is not a matter of shame or, or something you need to beat your breast about and, and feel guilty about and constantly apologize for. It's just very, very normal. 
most white people grow up with these elements embedded in their consciousness, but aware, unaware that they're there. So what I often say is my function is to show people that this is just an everyday widespread way that whites perceive the world. And that whenever that manifests itself in your thoughts and actions, it's not something you should think of as a sign of your essential inhumanity or, or immorality or, or anything else. It's normal. So it's unremarkable, really. So let's not make a big thing about it. Instead, let's get interested in trying to document the ways that we've no, noticed it appearing in our lives and, and, and when, when that ideology has, show up, has shown up. So when I say normalizing racism, I don't obviously mean making a racist structure seem normal. I mean the opposite of that. Uh, I'm trying to get to the opposite of that, but I'm, I'm trying to help people understand that feeling elements of racism is a very normal and natural thing, and, and, and they shouldn't immediately become overwhelmed with shame and guilt about it. One of the things I think I hear you saying, although I don't know if I just hear myself saying it, <laughs> but, but is in the importance of actually being able to name things. I found when I would teach principles of marketing, students would have a really hard time even just using names for different ethnicities to say Latino or Latina or to talk about African-American and that kind of got, oh gosh, do we say African-American or is that black? And, and even just trying to teach a vocabulary, albeit clumsy, because that's not like there's a master dictionary of respect somewhere, <laughs> respectful ways of referring to other people who are different than us. But then I also hear you talking about just that it doesn't have to be that all of a sudden you go and you become an absolute named racist because you inflicted a microaggression without realizing it and not having that intent. And how can we ever get you to become more aware if we don't lessen that shame like you talked about and lessen the guilt a little bit? So I hear a little bit of just naming things and then also that if we talk about them, it doesn't have to mean you're just forever going to be a terrible person, but there's movement, there's room for growth. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So the point of naming certain behaviors is to help you become a little bit more alert in the future when you start slipping into those same behaviors. And so you start noticing things that are happening in class or that have things that are happening in faculty meetings or in professional conferences, in seminars or panels or, or, and, and so on. So yes, the, the intent is just to name some of the things that are happening so that you can watch out for them with a little bit more of a raised consciousness and alertness. And that thing about name, how we name groups, I mean, that's one of the things that whites, like myself, I've done this, we agonize over getting it right, uh, getting the, the nomenclature correct, and because we don't want to sound disrespectful and be called a racist, and so we're terrified of saying the wrong thing. And I think that that terror 
of saying the wrong thing is what shuts a lot of white students and white faculty down when they're in a multiracial group because they don't want to be called racist or think of themselves as racist. But if you just get across the idea, well, you know, if you're going to define racism as learning an ideology without realizing that that has happened, then you are going to do a lot of racist things, but it has no bearing on your essential character. It's just a manifestation of the success of ideological conditioning. So yeah, naming them and being more alert is, is the, the short term project. I think that, um, Certainly for me, I'd say that that's a big thing of what I'm trying to do in, in my own teaching. What is a microaggression? And could you give us a few examples that either you've encountered, or observed, or, or perhaps even inflicted? Yes, a microaggression is something that was first developed in the, or first named in the 70s, but more recently, Gerald Wingsu at Teachers College has has written several influential books on this and and online you you'll see little instructional videos he's he's given on this so microaggression is um a small behavior um maybe it's where you direct your eye contact in a meeting maybe it's the choice of a particular word maybe it's how you notice hands going up in a room and who you call on in class so a microaggression is this small, almost unremarkable action that you take that the receiver, when they're on the other end of it, is often left wondering, well, is someone trying to disrespect me here? Are you trying to insult me or am I just imagining this? So it's not an overt, uh, you know, a racist slur or telling someone to shut up. It's a much more covert and unintentional action that has the same effect as telling someone overtly to shut up. So if I'm chairing a meeting and I disproportionately favor the men in the group or the whites in the group, then in effect, I'm shutting people up but I'm doing it in a quote-unquote loving way. You know, I'm not intentionally trying to keep people quiet. Uh, in fact, I think I'm running the meeting with transparency and honesty. So these are very slippery little things. And as I say, the receiver is often left wondering, well, <clears throat> was that intentional? And when the enactor is confronted with a microaggression, he or she will usually strenuously deny that anything has happened. And often people of the dominant culture will dive in to save the person, the enactor, by trying to convince the receiver by saying, no, no, you're imagining it. It's not really a big deal. It was just a momentary you know, lapse uh, of forgetfulness. Getfulness. And so an example of this that I like to use quite a bit is I, I was teaching a class a while ago and we were discussing a particular issue in class and I asked all the students to go around and each of them quickly give me their position on the issue. 
So <clears throat> we did this, and then I finished up by saying, well, it seems that, uh, you know, for, from, from what you said, the main questions you have about this topic are A and B, you know, summarizing this discussion. And the white woman in the class raised her hand and said, but we haven't heard from, and she named um, a Hmong student in the class. And I was, I was totally astonished and said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. So, you know, what would you like to say? And I turned to this woman and invited her to give her contribution. <clears throat> and then I went away and we, we took a break and I was thinking, in the break, it, this seems to me a real example of a microaggression. So I did something completely unaware and unintentionally, but that was probably received by this particular Hmong student as exclusionary and, and a way of, of silencing her and just not acknowledging her value or contribution. So I came back into the class and I said, just before we go on with class, I, I want to say that I think what you just witnessed um, before the break was a, 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 the commission of a microaggression on my part in that I had no idea that I had excluded anyone and I did not come to class thinking I must make sure that so-and-so doesn't speak. But if I hadn't been challenged by on this by the white woman who spoke up, I would have gone on happily without um, ever realizing that, that anything was, was untoward. And in response to that, a couple of white students said, as is very predictable with microaggressions, oh, don't be so hard on yourself, Professor Brookfield. One student said, you just had a brain fart. It's late. We all have moments of forgetfulness. You know, really don't, don't read so much into it. And then the young um, Hmong woman spoke up and said, this has happened to me in pretty much every one of the classes I've taken here at the University of St. Thomas, which is my employing institution. And uh, she said, at some point, I felt that something has happened in class that has somehow shut me out from um, being able to voice my uh, contribution or my opinion. So... For me, that, that's a great example of a microaggression, and hopefully also it's an indication of the way that a classroom teacher, if they're mindful of these sorts of things, can catch them and check in with the group. So I think you become better once you're aware of these microaggressions of being on higher alert for them and checking in with receivers on the effects that your actions are having. I hear two themes in what you're saying. One is that we are part of a larger system. And you said that, but I have to <laughs> break it down for my own mind. So we're part of patterns. And if it had just yeah. happened once, then it probably wouldn't be a big deal. But one of the things that Yolanda Flores-Neiman shared She's one of the co-authors of a book called Presumed Incompetent. And one of the things that both from reading that book and also getting to interview her really struck me is it is these patterns that makes it it's I think the expression is death by a thousand cuts. Is that the expression? 
Would you talk a bit about anger, how anger has shaped your thinking and reactions to racial differences? Well, uh, as a teacher, one of the things I'm very interested in, what, what, whatever area I'm teaching in, is why students are reluctant to learn something. And so in The Skillful Teacher, I had a whole chapter analyzing possible causes of resistance and reluctance and, and how teachers should respond to those. And when it comes to teaching about race and racism, one of the reasons why I think students are reluctant to engage in those conversations is because there is this fear that the conversation will get out of control, that strong emotions will be expressed, that people will start to cry, and in particular, people will get angry. And for white students, it's the fear that students of color will get angry with them for their racism. And for students of color, uh, it's the fear that why students will get angry with them for playing the race card and seeing race where it isn't really there. So this, this fear of anger is, I, I think, uh, a very strong inhibitor to um, getting discussions about race going. And it, it, it's not usually overtly expressed. So it's not like students say, well, I don't want to talk about this because I'm afraid of getting angry. Although I have heard that occasionally, but mostly it's a, a, a silent fear. And Bell Hooks talks about the way that bourgeois decorum is how she describes it, rules in American higher education. So the idea is that classrooms are places of, of calm reason and that in applying reason, because that's what academics do, intellectuals do, they're reasoning beings. In applying this, there really is no place for emotion. And if you get emotional, you've somehow fallen off this academic pedestal. And, and so she says this bourgeois decorum notion is, uh, really gets in the way when you're looking at very contentious issues rooted in uh, searing, raw, personal experiences of people and that, of course, anger is going to be part and partial of people authentically talking particularly about being on the receiving end of, of racism or on what they feel, what, what, on being, in their minds, unfairly accused of being racist. So one of the things I'm interested in is, is how do you prep students for sustained expressions of anger and help them realize that in this kind of conversation, that's probably going to happen. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of ways that you can do this. Um, one is to use this idea of the brave space classroom rather than the safe space classroom. And, and in a brave space classroom, um, the focus is on challenging uh, you know we're here to challenge rather than to make to reassure and so 
we know that we will have been successful when we start to feel uncomfortable and where some of our comfortable assumptions are being questioned. And, and so there are, there are various guidelines on how to create brave space classrooms and ground rules and the way you describe this in a, a syllabus. I use deliberately specific discussion protocols that allow for and expect a sustained expression of anger. So, so one of them is um, a, a Bohmian dialogue. It's a particular way of having people express what they're feeling. And one of the ground rules is that nobody can challenge the validity of someone's expression of deep feeling. You can talk about how that expression impacts you and your own response to it, but you can't challenge or deny it. And I like that ground rule because I've had students of color say to me that when they talk about the racism that they see around them and that they've personally experienced, white students often try and talk them out of it and say, well, no, that really wasn't racism. That kind of like the microaggressions thing, that was just, you know, forgetfulness or naivety. So I think, and I talk about this in a book I published last year, the discussion book I wrote with Steve Preskill, which has a lot of different techniques for running conversations. I feel that discussions about race need to be carefully structured and you don't just kind of breeze into them. There has to be attention to ground rules, either through brave space guidelines or through something like the Bohmian dialogue approach. So, and, and then I was going to say the third thing around the expression of anger, I think is to model your own willingness to sit with expressions of anger first. Uh, now it's hard to say to a colleague of color, come in and <laughs> express your anger to me in front of the group. It, it seems a little contrived. I mean, may, maybe it, when, I'm te- when I'm teaching in multiracial groups, maybe this will happen, which, which is a fantastic opportunity to model this. But what I'll often do is use video in which people of color are expressing their experiences extremely angrily and strongly and and have that video and just play that and then say to the group, you know, let's not move straight into conversation here. Let's just sit with this expression of anger. And if you're not from that racial minority, think about the experiences that might have informed it. If you can think of things that you've witnessed in your personal life that might also explain some of the anger that you've just witnessed, think about that too. And then often I'll, you know, do that for a couple of minutes and then I'll ask a question Uh, But I'll say, I don't want anyone to speak about this question. Either I'd like you to just do a a 90-second free write in response, or I'll use the Today's Meet tool. Um, Today's Meet is a website I use in every one of my classes, todaysmeet.com, and it's an open access 
back channel of communication in which students can anonymously post their responses. So I'll ask the question and then I'll, and I'll say, you know, take 90 seconds and, and, and post your response on today's meet and then we'll be able to see what everyone has been making of this expression of, of anger that we've just, just witnessed on videotape. So that's about the best right now that I can come up with in terms of prepping students for this and modeling doing it myself. But, you know, it's going to happen, so I, I just need to, to, to let people know this is in store. And I, I don't regard that as copping out or, you know, allowing students to opt out because that's not what's happening. It's more helping them realize um, w what's going to be happening in the future and preparing themselves for it emotionally. Before we get to the recommendation segment, is there anything you want to make sure that we talk about before we sort of switch subjects, but sort of not? Well, I would say the one thing, a sort of ontological thing I'd say about the just the nature of being in, in this kind of work is that I always feel I screw up. Every time I do this, I feel very conflicted about whether I've done anything meritorious. And I'll usually leave a discussion or a class or a workshop wishing that I could rewind the videotape. And I'll think of things I should have done and said, you know, uh, when, when I'm back home that evening. So I think we're all just struggling to make our way through this, muddling through in an informed way, as I like to say in The Skillful Teacher. And I don't think there is a template that we can follow. I don't think there is a manual or a set of precise guidelines. I think all we can do is talk to each other about how we're negotiating those struggles from positions of feeling like imposters and relatively inexperienced. And, and even though I've been doing this for quite a few years, I still feel you know, completely inexperienced. In no way am I an expert on that. I may have more years making mistakes, but that's about the most that I can say about it. This is the point in the show where we get to the recommendations and a former podcast guest, Rob Park, had recommended the Code Switch podcast. There's a wonderful episode that they did recently on, I guess it's a continuing part of a series of episodes they're doing on the Sanctuary Movement and this is showing up in sanctuary schools, but this particular episode is looking at sanctuary churches. And what I really liked about the episode was twofold. It, it really helped me become more informed about the sanctuary movement and specifically about some hard choices that churches are having to make in terms of all of this. But the second half of the episode really looked at storytelling and of course, if we're going to want to be advocating for issues like protecting people who are undocumented in our country, then we're going to want to tell their stories. But of course, when we tell their stories, then it puts them at risk. And I just thought it was a fascinating look at storytelling. And one of the hosts there, Adrian, talks to a woman named Jeanette Visquera, and she's living inside of a Colorado church, and she's fighting a legal deportation battle. 
And he talks to her and some of the risks that she's deciding to take. And of course, the church there is navigating all of this. And I thought it was really fascinating, too, because she's still trying to manage all the aspects of her home that she can't do while living in this church and trying to make sure her kids are getting to school and making sure that people she relies on are picking her up. And some of the story actually relates back to, Stephen, what you were talking about previously about being a, a white ally and because um, some of the people who help her are white. It's just a really, really interesting story. I learned a lot and I, I love the way that they were so respectful of the really difficult choices that people are making in this area. Stephen, what do you have to recommend um, today? Uh, my, my recommendation is oftentimes when I'm working with faculty uh, as well as students, I'll get requests from people who say, you know, we, we'd really like to, to get more intentionally involved in this work. Are there local groups that we can join? And so, you know, people know of the Black Lives Matter groups, hopefully, that, that are in, in their local uh, town or, or city. But I'd like to, to mention another group, which is called Surge. The initials are S-U-R-J. Surge, S-U-R-J, and the acronym uh, is Stand Up for Racial Justice, particularly for whites who are, you know, coming to a greater commitment to work in this area. The surge groups are a very good resource. They're a national network. And so, you know, they will be at Black Lives Matter protests. And a lot of their work is on how whites can become more aware of their own white racial identity and what allyship means and and all the things that we've talked about. Wonderful. It sounds like a terrific organization. I will definitely check it out. And we'll be linking to everything in the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 147. And Steve, thank you so much for joining me for this hard and important conversation. And you've just inspired me and I appreciate your transparency in all of this. Well, thank, thank you so much, Bonnie. And I, uh, I look forward to hearing from anyone. You can contact me directly via my homepage, which is just stephenbrookfield.com. My name, all one word, stephenbrookfield.com. And, and you can email me directly from there. So I'd love to hear from people who have any follow-up comments or questions. Thanks so much. It's wonderful having Stephen back on the show to talk about these important topics. If you haven't listened to episode 15, which he was on previously, or episode 98, I'd suggest you go check those out. And just thanks again for his wonderful contribution. And thanks to all of you for listening. These are really important conversations for us to have about our teaching. If you'd like to comment on this episode, you may do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 147. If you're looking for a little bit more of a private way of engaging, we do have a Slack group that's set up. You can go to teachinginhighered.com slash Slack to find out more and to join us in those somewhat more private conversations that aren't out there for all the world to see in the comment section. I'm really looking forward to our continued conversations. We've got episode 150 coming up here in just a few, and it's going to be an all recommendations episode. So get ready for that. See you next time. Mm